Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Well, Chancellor, it's nice to spend some time with you today, uh, and welcome to Nashville. Thank you. Uh, I want to talk about, we were talking off air just about your background and heritage, and, and so, uh, you know, I was sharing with you, me being first generation, and I want to get your perspective on sort of education globally as we sort of drill down and yeah. zoom in on Nashville. Yeah. I grew up understanding the German education system as one where highly focused at an early age, where you really started to figure out, as a young person, where your skills were might be best served. Yes. Where in the U.S. it was traditionally that you were given a longer runway to figure out these sort of elements and sort of maybe yes. what your path would be. Yeah. One, how accurate is that? And, and what's the impact of your background, do you think, in understanding what I would imagine people would... Uh, we're at sort of a, a crossroads in education, especially yes. in higher ed, and to understand what the next might look like. Yeah. How do you draw on your past, your heritage, your history, when you think about maybe what's next for Vanderbilt in your position as chancellor? Okay, that's a that's a big that's a big question. Well, we're going to so start right try, out of the gate, right? Let, let me let me unpack <laughs> it a little bit. So, um, so I benefited from the from the German education system. I think it has a lot of strength, but it has also some peculiarities and weaknesses. So. Uh, the first thing to you know think about um, when you think about Europe in general, and then I'm going to talk about Germany in the comparison of the U.S. in a minute. There's tremendous heterogeneity on that. So how that's set up really varies. In in Germany, really varies from state to state. So the most rigorous um, is you know probably the Bavarian, the southern southern German one, which is where I spent most of my time. And you know in fourth grade, um, which is when you're like what ten years old you're being sorted um, into one or three categories. And there's a, you know, it depends on your on your GPA at the time. Uh, the, the highest category, which is allowed you to go what's what we call gymnasium, and that's, um, you know, another eight years. In my time, it was nine years, and that allows you to go to the university. And uh, the second tier is then you basically go to some kind of a trade school. You, you become usually, you know, a clerk at a, you know, maybe a, a desk job. And then the third year, so we only have, um, uh, again, this is, is maybe a little bit out of date, but you have like um, six years of schooling. And then the third is skilled trades, and that's um, another five years of schooling. And uh, so at the age of 10, for all practical purposes, your future is set. Uh, that's very early. And, uh, and, um, and it's possible to go back and forth between these tiers. But it's usually one way, which is from the higher tiers to the lower tiers, getting back up is super difficult. It's not impossible, but it's super difficult. The northern, in the northern uh, states, it's a little different. It's not quite as, you know, kind of sorted. Um, but the German system is, is very clear about sorting by what they perceive to be the ability of the student. Um, uh, that is that has tremendous consequences for social mobility, and uh, even though all the schools are funded, there's no funding differences. But what you'll see very very quickly is that if you have a, you know, if you come from an academic background, um, you know, there's just advantages that you have at home. It's like uh, you know, your 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 parents expect you to go to the gymnasium. They sit down, they do the homework with you. 
there's an expectation and aspiration that, that if you come from a first generation a household may not be there. And it doesn't wait until the university. It happens when you're 10. And so that's a, that's a, that has significant consequences. Um, and I think what it, what, it, what it shows is that, you know, um, the sources of how opportunities are provided to students, uh, one has to really look carefully. And so I think sometimes our debate on that is a little bit superficial uh, because it's not all, you know, funding plays a role, of course, and, you know, all these types of things and uh, the cost of going to college. But you have to look much more deeply into this. And in the, in the, in the German educational system, you know, there's some small amount of private schools, but they're largely irrelevant. Everything is funded by the taxpayer, but there are tremendous, um, you know, education mobility is, 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 is not that high. And so why is that? Because what happens at home? You know, what happens in the family and what happens in terms of, like, uh, whether, you, whether your parents can afford to, you know, get you a tutor or not or want to get you a tutor or not or make sure you make the homeworks or not. All these types of things are enormously important in the German system. So that's, that's comment one. Comment two is... I'm a huge fan of the U.S. educational system. I think that it's far superior uh, to um, what you have what you have in Europe, and, uh, and it's far superior, especially at the end where uh, where I operate, which is the you know the kind of most selective um, world-leading universities. I think you can make an argument that for broader public education, um, the, the German system works well. Um, arguably better than the U.S. system. Um, uh, certainly there's much higher completion rates um, than you have in many public universities, but for the, you know, for the, for the top research university, nothing comes close uh, to, to um, U.S. universities. And I think the transformative education that U.S. universities provide, again, at that, at that level, um, is second to none with the possible exception of, you know, a couple of universities in Britain. And, um, and, and there are reasons for that. Um, I think the educational model of, like, uh, you know, the undergraduate education, where you fundamentally, you know, in a living learning community of your, of your peers, but surrounded by, you know, world-class faculty, that's tough to beat. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's resource-intensive, uh, but for, for the right type, for, for the students that really benefit from that, nothing comes close. Um, and I think the record bears that out. Again, now you go to like larger public universities. I think that's a, you know that's a real debate on like um, you know how well we're doing on that. And I think there are, there there's some very troubling statistics. And there you there one may argue that um, the European model is more successful, um, but you know one has to look at the at the details there to really to really be sure. Um, so I love the what I love about the U.S. system is its diversity. So that there's, you know, from liberal arts colleges to large public universities to, you know, our own research universities, again, of different flavors. There are, you know, community colleges. There is just a tremendous amount of, of diversity and variety. So that's the, I think that's the, on the educational side, very hard to beat. Now, then you have to worry about access. And uh, as I said before, the, the way access is regulated, is regulated in the German system. It happens much earlier uh, than at the at the level of entry into the university. 
Well, there's another there's another level of access group for like highly competitive like medicine, for example. It's very hard to get in. Uh, but the but the, the the you know the the sorting happens much earlier. Uh, so you know, for us and for many of our peers, what that means is that uh, we want to provide the level of financial support um, that allows any student that can benefit from a valuable education to do that and to leave debt free. And so we're you know we're we're need blind. We're we're we, we our students do not do not need to take on debt. Um, and and uh, you know that's a tremendous that's a tremendous resource commitments that we're doing towards our students. Uh, but it's driven by the fact that we want to provide access and opportunity for our students, irrespective of the financial needs um, of their families. And you know, there's like uh, I don't I want to say ten universities in the United States that do both of these things. Maybe it's nine, maybe it's eleven. I'm not 100 sure, but that's the order of magnitude. That is a wonderful model. We wish we could have that model for every student. Um, that would be that would be ideal. Um, but at least you know, um, in that segment where we're operating, I, I think the model is great. Let's talk about the value of higher education. It feels like we are struggling, just yeah. nationally, to yeah. communicate the overall value of coming to a four-year institution, let alone graduate work and beyond. Where do you think we are in that uh, debate? Have we done a good job of marketing the value to students that are now looking at all kinds of options that were never sort of present for you and I uh, when we were growing up to be able to diversify to actually to even look at time, right? We came through systems where everything was blocked and organized based on time. It feels like they have inverted all of that and said, well, why do we have to do it that way? Why can't we chump together our learnings or start at a community college or do something online? How, where are we with the value proposition and how we're communicating that yeah, to so our I think, students? I think the value of a four-year degree, the return to it, mm-hmm. is, is still very high. And the returns to education have actually been increasing. And, um, and um, But it's important that people graduate. So one of the things that, that, that you know, that's interesting, somewhat troubling, is that um, you've got to graduate. So the biggest problem that I see is not, the, it's not, the, it's not that there's no return to getting a, a BA. It's very high still. Um, the concern that I have is that um, the earnings potential for people that don't have that or drop out of high school is going on down dramatically. And then the second piece is non-completion. So you have students that are that take classes, you know, for like two years, one year, do not get it, do not get a BA. Um, that's that I think is where the biggest problem is. It's not that there's this great alternative model that is a better deal, so to speak, or it's it's making sure we prefer we, we prepare our students to, to go to college and then graduate. And and um, you know, our graduation rate is what 60, it's like 96, 97%. In our peer group, everybody is north of 90. That is not true of universities nationwide. And so, um, as I said before, we are like, you know, we have a, we have a, you know, a model that's very, very successful in, in preparing our students for the workforce. But you can't say this for the university model in the United States as a whole. So to me, that's the biggest, that's the biggest aspect. Then there's a second piece, which has to do 
with, um, I'm going to call this continuing education, um, skilling, uh, workforce development, um, where these are not necessarily degrees. This may be, you know, a certificate. This may be a, you know, you want to learn something about, I don't know, digital marketing. You don't want to take a two-year master's degree on that. Um, that, I think, we're, we're, is just underdeveloped. I think it's underdeveloped. In certain areas of our, of our world, there is a lot of that, like, for example, in business schools. But on the more technical side, the STEM fields, I think, for example, there's very little. And these things rapidly change. And uh, I think that's that's an important part. Of course, the big question is, in the back of all of our minds, is how does you know how is online going to play out down the line? Um, my sense is is that I don't really have a point of view. I don't know. I don't have a point of view how this is going to play out for public universities for the large at large scale. There are obviously the emergence of very large online providers now. Um, some of them are you know kind of new entrants. Some of them are um, public universities that have really doubled down on that, you know, Purdue, Arizona State, are examples like that. Um, it just have to see how that works. I mean, whether they are going to be able to compete effectively um, with a large, a traditional large public, you know, university system. I think that's. I think. I think there's a lot of things that are very innovative there. Very interesting to watch that space. It's not the space we operate in, but it's it's, it's interesting, and. If we're able to, I mean, the, the, the goal there is, is to educate lots of people at scale, effectively, and at comparatively low cost. I can totally see that online plays an important role there. Um, for us and for our model, uh, what COVID has done, it has reinforced the value of an in-person education. So um, the, the desire of our students to be together and to have that living learning kind of experience has been off the charts. And I see the same thing with my peers. They were devastated if they couldn't do that. Um, so where I see the impact on online for places like Vanderbilt is not as a, as a substitute for the in-person undergraduate experience or like you know the JD or the MD or anything like that. I see it as opening venues for continuing education in a different way because we have now done this at scale and um, our faculty has has a lot of experience with that. Now they're comfortable with this. So how do we think about the continuing education side? That's the I think that's the more interesting place for us. But you know, at at a, at, a, at an Arizona State or Purdue, they're just going to have their you know they're playing a different segment than than we're operating in, and I think they're that um, there the question of like whether online is a substitute for what they're typically doing is it just has a, has a very different relevance than what we're what we're dealing with. What's the impact on the Vanderbilts, the Harvards of the world, when you think about the masses of public universities and all the challenges that they have, fears of consolidation, right? So all of these different retention. Mm-hmm. Is there any blowback or, in, or or indicator that you have to be aware of when you think about the impact on either future classes? We talk about the demographic cliff mm-hmm. of 2025, 2026. Mm-hmm. Are those discussions being had at the likes of Vanderbilt and other universities like? We're just like not affected by that. I mean, let's take the demographic cliff, right? Um, we're like, a, our applications last year went up by 30%. Okay, we now have 45,000 applicants. You get the exact number, but I don't. You know, it's 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 that order of magnitude for like uh, 
you know, 1,600, 1,700 entering students. So we're like, you know, our selectivity is 7.1% now. Um, the demand for, and this, we're not the only one where this happened. No, there's complicated reasons for why, you know, um, demand has gone up. Different conversation. But when we look at the demand for um, undergraduate education in that tier, you know, top 25 private research universities is has never been stronger and, and is continuing to grow stronger. And um, now we can ask ourselves why that is, you know, what are the reasons for that, but, but we're not affected by that. Now, um, you look at liberal arts colleges, especially not top-tier universities, and top-tier liberal arts colleges is an entirely different conversation. If you talk at public universities, entirely different conversation, especially, again, that are not, you know, not... not uh, not top tier, but we're not affected by that at all. So I don't think that these kind of big macro trends, and what are the big macro trends? Demographic effects, um, you know, technology, um, at least for the undergraduate experience, and, and are there, I don't see the model being disrupted for us. And, uh, you know, maybe these are famous last words, but <laughs> I'm like, I just don't see it. And I don't, I don't see, I think the, the value proposition that we have especially if you can provide sufficient financial aid um, for our students is, is, is as compelling as it ever has been. So that, that doesn't worry me. Um, there's interesting things that are happening on, you know, as I said before, continuing education, you know, certain master degrees, you know, master degrees that are basically towards the working, the working student. That's a totally different conversation. That's super interesting. I think there is going to be a lot of movement on that. I think the, the return to skills is just going to go up. Uh, I don't think that's going down. But then the question is, you know, what's the most effective delivery and how do you do this if you are dealing with, you know, working adults? Very different conversation. Um, Does the evaluation change when you think about programs, degree programs, and then whether students are getting placed or not? You know, because there are some things that are in your control and some that are not, right? Yeah, you know, it's like, a, look, it, it's so much driven by the field, right? So we have a, uh, we have a, this is, this is, this is, we have a master's degree in accounting in the business school. Every one of these students gets hired before they take their first class. Okay, so because the, the, the demand for these skills is like off the charts. People are now hiring our PhDs in astrophysics, you know, for an insurance company or like anybody that has a desire for large data because even though they grew up, you know, studying supernovae, right, the skills that they have are, are, are clearly portable on the other side. On the other hand, you know, we have a dramatic crisis um, uh, nationwide in terms of like uh, PhD students, you know, particular in the humanities and qualitative social sciences can't find any jobs. So you have, you know, you have, on the one hand, I have an entire class being being hired before they set foot on campus. On the other case, I have, like, you know, we have, in a, you know, you take the best English departments in the country. Columbia had that recently, right? There was a big, you know, big, one was it three years ago, that didn't place a single of the graduates into an academic program. And, you know, the students wrote a letter and, you know, it's entirely different thing. So this is this is I think if you are if you are you know in a field for graduate degree 
where there is, you know, strong demand on that. And we're not, that, that's not, it's a, that, that aspect of like uh, job prospects for graduate degrees entirely driven by field, I my view. Not modality, not type of, even, even, um, that, that's the, that's the, that's, that's the first order effect, yeah. Is there any impact on this entrepreneurial spirit that we have, not just in our country, but around the world for young people? I mean, I don't ever remember growing up talking about owning a business or yeah. starting something or partnering yeah. with, but that feels like commonplace for commonplace. young people. How, do, how does that impact an institution that's built on legacy and tradition yes. and success when we think about the fluidity of the entrepreneur's mind or yeah. approach? Uh, so the first thing I would say is like you're exactly right, is that um, we see now... Um, e entrepreneurial ecosystems popping up all across the country. They were highly concentrated in you know, you know, four or five places before. We now have them everywhere. We certainly see them here in Nashville. Uh, the second piece that I would say is that our students and our faculty are super interested in that. Um, the consequence for us is we're going to have to be even more active in providing entrepreneurial opportunities for our students. Now we're doing some, you know, we're doing some great things already. We're doing it through the Wandry, a uh, variety of other programs. But um, let me let me say something provocative on that. Fifteen years from now, I don't think you're going to be a great university if you don't have a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem around you. And that's true for the students, and it's true for the faculty, particularly in the STEM fields. Many of them are active. Um, entrepreneurially, and they play, you know, they're, 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 that's kind of, you know, deep tech innovation that comes directly out of the lab, super valuable, great source of strength for the United States, and, and we just, we just need to unleash that. I think that's, that's what that is. Um, but one thing I think that we underappreciate is that when we think, you know, when we think innovation, we often think, tech companies and so forth, but the most, the most transformative and profound innovation tends to come out of universities and, and to a certain extent out of nationalists, but particularly universities. So many of the foundational technologies that we're dealing with were developed in universities, and you just see this now, you know, with COVID. I mean, whether it's like uh, just at Vanderbilt, right, development of antibody treatment, development of treatments, clinical trials, the early work that led to the vaccines. Um, that's done in universities. So the, 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 the company companies are taking it on, scaling it up, bringing it to market. But the, the real innovative engines, you know, of the United States is in the research universities. And I think that's sometimes not appreciated. And uh, is that an issue of marketing? Yeah, I think it's, well, maybe it's coming a communication, telling our story effectively. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it's certainly a question about being able to tell this more, in a more compelling fashion. We have not succeeded at that. Uh, I think that's a, fair, that's a fair statement. But it's not because it's not happening. It's happening at a dramatic scale all across the board in many different areas. Um, it's it, not recognized so much. Is it a challenge because of tradition? It feels like it, you have two sort of opposites sort of yeah. at play, right? So we're, we're leaning into the tradition, which is why yeah. someone wants to right, apply to a Vanderbilt or a Harvard, right? But yet to be that, to have that steeped in tradition might impact that. It could, but that, I think you have great successful models where yeah. this is not the case, right? So, you know, certainly, you know, you take Stanford, MIT, mm -hmm. everybody knows that they're entrepreneurial powerhouses. Students and faculty go there for that. And, you know, they're like, they're very permeable. 
and um, certainly something we aspire to do, to be more permeable to the entrepreneurial um, and the business community in Nashville, which we need to do. We need to do better. Um, it's a, it's a, I think the, 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 the realities on the ground, the, the, story, the story of innovation and the role of universities in the United States is really good. The ability to tell that story, much less successful. Let's talk about Nashville. You mentioned Nashville. Sure. So I was speaking with, your, with Belmont University's president, uh, Dr. Jones, talking about just looking out and seeing the cityscape of Nashville and yeah. how that plays a role just in the thinking that, that you know, your partner university right here down the street, Belmont, is taking. And I'm curious as to how Vanderbilt looks at the partnerships with, with Nashville, thinking about the oracles and the Amazons and how that might impact whether it's the story that Vanderbilt tells to a potential student and or to those that want to partner with Vanderbilt and bring sort of a new opportunity to the market, to the community. So, there, so our relationship with Nashville is essential for us. Um, it, it, there, there are multiple dimensions to this. The first one, hugely important to us, is that Nashville is now a tremendous advantage for us. Uh, and the reason why I said that the, the most important aspect of that is that people want to live here. People that are at the very top of their field are moving to the city. Um, when we recruit faculty, um, being able to tell them about Nashville and what Nashville is like is a huge winner. They don't always know it. So they don't always know it, but once they're here, once we bring them here and we tell them about it, it's, a, it's an enormous advantage. And of course, you know, you're well aware of the kind of uh, the relocation of a lot of people from, you know, both from the coast, but also from, you know, the Midwest um, to, you know, Sunbelt cities. We are as much a beneficiary of that as anybody, and uh, that's individuals, um, but that's also institutions, of course. You mentioned, um, you know, Oracle and Amazon, Alliance Bernstein moved here. Uh, there's just influx of talent. And the reason why there's influx of talent is because it's an attractive place to be. It's business-friendly, it's a business-friendly climate, and it's an attractive place to be where people want to live. That is an enormous advantage, enormous advantage. Very much a, uh, an advantage for us at Vanderbilt on the student side, on the faculty side, on the staff side. The challenges come on that is that, you know, it's going very fast, and so there's an imbalance in terms of, like, supply of housing and things like that. That's... So purely infrastructure, infrastructure, yeah. infrastructure problems. But you know, I think that's gonna that's gonna sort itself out. And of course, you know, COVID just further accelerated that. But the the location for us right now to be in Nashville, just on the talent side, is fantastic. I mean, it's hard it's hard to beat that. That's number one. The second piece is is that um, we want to be more connected with the city. And I think historically we have not been as much as we should have. This is a top priority for me. Um, I mentioned the importance on the innovation side and on the entrepreneurial side. Um, we are we have we have various you know the city has strong entrepreneurial ecosystems. For example, on healthcare management, music industry, of course, but there are also others that still need to be developed. For example, the biomedical side we can play an enormously important role on that because we are a biomedical powerhouse together with the medical center. 
but that hasn't happened. So there are there are. So it's an opportunity. Oh my God, opportunity everywhere you look at it, right? It's like a, it's you know it's it's certainly biomedical, but it's in other industries as well, and um, and so we need to create platforms that allow our faculty and our students to do this more easily, and we're we're we're, we're fully focused on that. Um, many of these will mean to have partnerships, love their partnerships with other universities. You know, Nashville is blessed by having a a large supply of uh, you know of universities and colleges, very diverse, um, with their specific you know strengths and weaknesses. And so, um, you know, having having working, f- we're not competing with each other in Nashville. We're competing, you know, with the coast and with the Midwest and with Texas and with Georgia. And that's that's what we have to understand, and that is that is that is hugely important for us because fundamentally we're we're competing for talent and we're competing for capital, and uh, and there's going to be a lot of movement happening, and we already see that, and we want to be among the cities that benefit from that. Um, so the more we can do on that, the better partner we can be to the city. The better partner we can be, I think, statewide as well, which is sometimes underappreciated. I think we want to think about this from a state level point of view, because um, there there are advantages on that. You know, we have great assets in Knoxville, we have great assets in Chattanooga and Memphis. You know, we have Oak Ridge, we have you know the car industry. And I mean, there's a lot of assets here that, that that need to be coordinated and need to be thought about. But the the fundamental thing for us is fully embrace our role as a you know as a pillar of this community. As a pillar of the state, as an as an you know innovation powerhouse, um, as a you know as a great attractor and source of talent, and then look for opportunities to be an even better partner uh, with both institutions of higher education, but more broadly speaking, you know kind of uh, nonprofits, governmental entities, businesses. We want to be an integral part of the community. Do, do we? If I'm the if I'm the mayor or if I'm you know a community member, I'm hoping that talent at Nashville stays when a student graduates yeah. that they stay. But I also see the benefit if a if a graduate goes on to another city or yeah. another country that that expands the brand, the opportunity down the line that we can all benefit from in different ways. How do you think about that, and how should Nashville think about the talent that you bring here, cultivate? And then what happens to the talent upon graduation? I would, I would, the way I would think about it, we, we're now, you know, we have a, you know, we're one of the, you know, leading national universities now. We are, our students come from across the country globally. Um, we are very, very, we're hot school, you know, in, in on the coast right now. We know, we know, and uh, we see a lot of interest in that. That's just growing because... You know, until a few years ago, we were not on the radar screen. Even though we, we all had always provided a great education, um, people would look at the IVs, and you know, and and that has changed. So we're now we're now favorably competing with many, with many of such universities for incoming students, and they come from all across the country, and they come from across the world. So the way I would think about it is that I want them to be when they walk out of here. I want them to have opportunity to work anywhere they want um, and uh, and be in a position that they can they can you know they can work in California they can work in New York they can work in Chicago they can work in Seoul they can work in Frankfurt but then if they choose to 
you know, work in Nashville because that's the best place for them, even better. And I think that's something that we're seeing increasingly. It's not that, that, that people stay here because they have to, but because they want to. And that's a reflection of the, I think, of the evolution of Nashville as a destination of choice, not only for our own students, but for talent across the country. It feels like it would be an active conversation. When we think about all the things that make a city appealing, I mean, Nashville's had the NFL draft. We had a million people over a three-day period of time in the pouring rain, the Predators, and their run to the Stanley Cup in 2017. So you had this national attention. Yes. And it feels like, as a community member, I would hope that you and the mayor and Dr. Jones, that everyone spends time regularly talking about these things because it feels like everybody benefits. Yes when we communicate what our strategies are, what our efforts are, is that, is that fair? Yeah, you're, you're, you're exactly right. I think there are, first of all, there are tremendous amount of assets here. Professional sports is an important part of this. And, um, and, and first of all, because people that, that move somewhere want that. And, it, and as you said before, it highlights their visibility. I mean, even yesterday, you know, like to have the, you know, to have the Titans on Monday Night Football, that puts, that, you know, with the images and, you know, the people walking around and it reminds people, it puts, it puts you know, natural front and center. Um, the same is true with tourism. I mean, you know, we all, there's issues now with, you know, transportainment and, you know, a lot of people and, you know, not always behaving the way we want them to behave, but, I mean, it's, you know, there's a tremendous tremendous desire and um, you know for people to be here you know for weekend and so forth and uh, you know we're, we're, we're I, I think my husband you know we, we're cities compete for talent for visitors for jobs right for capital and 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 we have to be clear about that and we have to be smart and mindful about that and the more the leaders of the city, are in constant communication and think this through and and understand where the challenges are and understand where the benefits are the better for everybody. Let's close with this. I know your, your background in political science. Yeah. And, you know, when we think traditionally about higher education, colleges and universities, that they are, they are platforms, they are arenas for discourse. Yes. You know, the I mean, when you think about it, we're in Davidson County. Middle Tennessee, yeah, right. But we are traditionally in a red state, and it's not to talk politics, but it's yeah. more about just sort of the. I would imagine that the the interest for you, just personally, and the things that you you gravitate towards yes. and topics of interest, would put you front and center to even just think about whether it's coffee with friends and family or yeah. colleagues about what role a university can play, yes, should play, yes, in a time when we are talking about such weighty, heavy issues yes. that. In all, in all likelihood, the younger generations are going to actually author what they what they will look like. Right? Yes, right. So, what is your position and what is your thought process on discourse yes. with the platform of a university? So, I think that universities um, must play a very important role uh, in fostering civic discourse, reinforcing the values that under that undergird them and and demonstrate that in their in their daily practice. So um, what does that mean? What that means is, is that we want to bring um, diverse voices and perspectives to campus for faculty and for our students and then we want to provide a platform 
where they can discuss, debate, and 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 you know figure things out. And our job as a university is not to give them the answers, not to tell them what to think, but to tell to provide an environment where our students can learn how to think these things through, and where faculty has a platform to explore a complex issue, important issues of the day, uh, by you know by discussing, by exploring. Um, uh, you know, wherever they want their, their research takes them um, in an environment that that, uh, that maintains uh, academic freedom, free expression, and civic discourse. That's, that's the goal. And that is, these values are under, under threat. I think that's, uh, we live in a highly polarized environment um, where people have stopped talking to each other where people have stopped listening to the other side, and where we are more like, a, where it's more about winning rather than figuring out, you know, what what's, you know, figuring out what's true, what's working, and, um, and you know, to get to the bottom of things. Um, that's very problematic. It's, it's very problematic for society. It's, it's even, it, it's especially problematic in the university context. And um, the sense to retreat to kind of a you know to a to your own you know group or to your own faction and stop listening to what the other side is and believe that you have everything figured out and the other people are basically you know morally inferior is super problematic and so so you know we do this in our day to day in our day to day work it's not always easy um, but uh, we, we want to make sure that the members of our community, when they're engaged with an issue, they appreciate that almost always things are more complicated than their peer, that the world is complex, that when you're, when you're interacting with somebody, when you're having a discussion or even a debate with somebody, you, can, you want to listen, you can learn something from the other side, and you may, and you may also be convinced that, uh, that they have a better argument than you. And, um, you know, that commitment, that's what we mean by civic discourse. You know, it's a commitment to a certain set of values that are fundamental to any educational academic community. And, you know, I think our job as academic leaders is to insist on that. And then we'd like to take them and see whether we cannot, whether we can have a positive impact on policy discourse and political culture, you know, in our country overall. That's really the root for the uh, uh, Vanderbilt project on the unity in American democracy, because many of these values that are constitutive for an academic and university community are very important when we're dealing with the challenging problems of our times as well. And um, and uh, you know, many of the important. Um, accomplishments that this, you know, this country and, and, and other countries have done. It, it wasn't about one side beating the other. It was about dealing with complex, complicated issues, finding common ground, working through that, often over years, and coming up with, with solutions that uh, that were, you know, that were that often involved, you know, multiple voices, and and working through the details and to the complications and. It's important for us that we remember that, is that we remember um, the examples where we as a country succeeded at that, how it was done, why it was done, what was the role of leadership in that, 
and and take these as I think as as case studies that motivate ourselves to think through that, uh, to take them and uh, and 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 take them as paradigms to deal with the challenge of the day. That's and that's that is that is crucial. And it feels like that's what really highlights the importance of the relationship that Vanderbilt has with the city and the yes. other universities because. Politics that does come into play, right? I mean, there are all kinds of things to the com- complexity that you mentioned. Yes, I, I'm, relationships. Less, I, I'm less, I'm less worried about this about the local context. I'm a lot more worried about the national context mm-hmm. there, and I think that, um, you know, this is like we are, you know, we have a advantage, but also a natural, you know, there's a pretty community-oriented and collaborative and cooperative place. That doesn't mean we don't have our disagreements. What worries me is the national is the erosion of the national discourse. That's that's what worries me. And and what's going on in you know in other communities where things are a lot worse politically. Um, so so yes, it, it, it's good to think about this in the context of you know our own civic engagement and how do we want to participate in that. But but I think universities must be a model. For how to think about these issues nationwide, and and you know even globally, because the United States is not the other country, the only country that is affected by this. Well, thank you. You you, you took every question that I, I posed. I appreciate Beautiful. the transparency. Thank you. Again, welcome to Nashville, and thank Vanderbilt's you. lucky to have you. It. Thank you. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.